It's ASM Classic Season 2. This show is about Spider-Man from the beginning. I'm Zach Joyner, the owner of the website that powers the program, spidey-dude.com, and executive producer of the Spidey Dude Radio Network. I want to thank you for deciding to give our show a listen today, but before we get started, I wanted to also thank our patrons at patreon.com slash Network. Greg Vinkman, Scott, Kaylee, Jurgen, and Phoenician, thank you all for your support. And if you want to get great perks, such as getting the show earlier and more, check it out at patreon.com slash network. But before I turn it over to the hosts, I also want to encourage you to check out our other fine programs on the network. Spidey Dude Experience, Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast, Make Mine Mayday, Bogan Rider Variety Hour, Clone Saga Chronicles, Spectacular Radio, and coming soon, the Salby Sima Era podcast. Please follow the network on Twitter at Spidey Dude Radio and this show at ASM underscore classics. And feel free to send us feedback at network at gmail.com. Leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting catcher, such as Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeart, Amazon, Audible. Let us know how we're doing and give us those five stars to help raise our visibility. Your feedback is welcomed and appreciated in advance. Also, leave a voicemail if you'd like, 818-925-6631 if you want the voice to be your voice to be heard on the show. Once again, I want to thank you for listening. And with that, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce our hosts of the program, Jack and Javier Trujillo. Hello and welcome to the all-new, all-different, Amazing Spider-Man Classics 2.0. I am your co-host, Javi Trujillo, and I am joined by my son. Hello. What's your name, son? Uh, Jack Trujillo. And we are going to be taking over uh, the Amazing Spider-Man Classics podcast from Donovan Morgan Grant, John Wilson, and Josh Bertoni. Uh, We have spoken with those gentlemen and have gotten their blessing to basically remake the work that they did and remix it in a new lens. Uh, Those guys are some great guys. If you haven't listened to those episodes... I highly recommend them. They're on spidey-dude.com, and everywhere fine podcasts can be downloaded. Um, The difference here, though, is uh, we are father and son. Um, In my mid-40s, Jack, though, is a teenager in high school. And, Jack, have you ever read the original run of Amazing Spider-Man? Uh, I read like the first two issues. Yeah. But other than that, have you gone on to any of the other Steve Ditko's or John Romita comics? No. can't say that I have. So this is going to be pretty fresh for you. And so the purpose of going back to the beginning instead of picking up where those gentlemen left off is here we are. It's January, January 27th of 2021 as we record this. And... What we have is a teenager in the modern era going back and reading these stories that started in 1962. And we're going to look at it from that lens. Uh, one, how they hold up for him and how they hold up for me. I first read these uh, when I was a young lad in the 80s when they were reprinted as Marvel Tales. So while I've read them a lot, it's been a long time since I've gotten to just dive back into this era. So I'm looking forward to see how well they hold up for me, because in my esteem, they're untouchable. So Jack, uh, before we get into the issues that we're covering today, 
tell me a little bit about yourself. What what do you remember some of your first comic books? First comic books? Ah, oh, jeez. Um, shoot. Should have asked me this earlier. Um, <laughs> Just in general, what do you remember reading growing up? Well, Spider-Man, duh. That's obvious. Um, it was Tiny Titans, right? That's what it was called? Uh, yeah, uh, Tiny Titans by yeah. DC. I remember Dad reading that. We just went through a pile. Well, let let, let me ask you a question, because you just told our listeners that you've read Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2, um, and that's all your knowledge for that. But then you just said that growing up you read Spider-Man. What Spider-Man did you read when you were younger? Um, Miles Morales. Ultimate Spider-Man stuff. All right. So... At this point in time, who, when you think of Spider-Man, who do you think of in your head? Um, Peter, mainly. Mm-hmm. I mean, can't not think of Peter. Yeah, I mean, he, he's the guy that started it all. Um, and I mean, he, he definitely casts a big shadow over everyone that came later. And I think everyone gets compared to Peter because they have to be different. Otherwise, they're just going over the same thing again. Who, who do you feel is your Spider-Man? Is it Peter? Uh, no. Who's your Spider-Man? Miles, though. Miles is? Miles. What is it about Miles that, that you like? Um, he's... Well, Peter nowadays is, like, in his 30s, right? Something like that. Marvel yeah. likes to slide that back a bit. Yeah, who knows. And Miles is teen young teenager. I don't know. He's a teenager right now, right? So yeah, yeah. He's still in high school. Yeah. At Visions Academy. Yeah, and I can relate to that, and also his background as a black Latino American. I mean, I'm white, but we still have that Hispanic blood in us. Yes, you are half Hispanic. Yeah. All right. So, what is your first Spider-Man comic that you remember reading? Uh, that would be uh, Web of Spider-Man 100. Web of Spider-Man 100. What's special about Web of Spider-Man 100? What sticks out about that comic for you? It's mainly the cover. What about that cover stands out amongst all the other ones? The armored Spider-Man. Because um, my main memory with Spider-Man as a child was uh, playing the PS1 game a whole bunch. And... Of course, there's the upgrade that turn- gives him the armor. And then, yeah, and I had a little, I forget what they were called, but there was a little figure of him that I had. Was it the Mini-Mates, or was it the... No. They were like, not play school, but like, like tod- toddler-aged toys, right? Marvel, were they like Marvel superheroes? Oh, man. I forgot what those are called. I know what you're talking about. They're like yeah. aimed for like three to five year old kids and have like, you can move the arms at the shoulders and maybe the head if you're lucky and that's about it. Yeah. But for the most part, they're in that one static pose. Yeah. I remember that figure. I wonder what happened to it. I don't know. It's <laughs> somewhere in the garage, maybe. Probably. And I remember that comic too when it came out because I would have been, that was like the 90s. So I would have been in high school, I think, probably around your age. When that came out with that green hollow foil cover, 
90s were big into their covers and gimmicks and you had your holograms, you had your hollow foils, you had your posters that were included in your comic. I mean, you name it, they were doing it to make it stand out and boost that speculator market. For me, uh, my first Spider-Man comic that I remember, the first comic I remember, I'm sure I read comics or had comics read to me before then, was uh, Marvel Tales 142. Now, I've told this story elsewhere, but uh, I remember your Tata taking me to the Quick Mart, which is a convenience store. And back in the day, kids, convenience stores had these things called spinner racks. And on these spinner racks were comics. Usually they got pretty beat up the longer they stayed there because people would thumb through them and then they would get bent. But uh, that day, this one particular day, your grandfather bought me Marvel Tales 142, which was a reprint of Amazing Spider-Man number 5, where Spider-Man fought the Doctor Doom to save Flash Thompson. Well, we'll get to that in a couple episodes. Uh, But basically, he bought that for me. He bought another issue of Spectacular Spider-Man that had Cloak and Dagger in it, and I think Silvermane, that kind of freaked me out. Um, But that was for me to give to my cousin, my cousin Rob, whose house I was spending the night at that night. And long story short, we read our comics that night, and his freaked me out too much. (laughs) But anyways, I stuck with Amazing Spider... Or, I'm sorry, with Marvel Tales. Um... And I guess because that's what my dad grew up with, like that was what the comics that he knew, he was always getting me older comics. It was very rare that he got me something that had come out that month. And back then, there weren't a lot of comic shops that I know of in Tucson, or at least not ones that my dad could get to frequently. There was some market that he would get to soccer magazine, and sometimes they had comics, or he would go to this used bookstore on the other side of town called Bookman's that had used comics. So sometimes he would go over there after he played soccer for the night and then pick me up a book and bring it on his way home. So I got a lot of older comics. I was reading stuff from like the 50s and 60s growing up, not the 80s. Um, So for whatever reason, like I didn't read Amazing Spider-Man back then. Like I would just keep going with Marvel Tales. And I think... At the time, they were $0.65, cents, and then they jumped up to $0.75. Cents. But, you know, for the most part, I felt like I got in on the ground floor of Spider-Man. I started it as fifth issue and went from there. And, you know, later on in life, I went back. And in high school, I got a tray paperback of Marvel Masterworks that had Amazing Fantasy 15 and Spider- Amazing Spider-Man 1 through 5. Um, so that was the first time I got to read like the first Vulture and Doc Ock and uh, Sandman. But for the most part, you know, from issue five onwards, that's the Spider-Man I grew up reading. And I related to it a lot being, you know, five, six, seven years old, reading about this high school kid who was smart and did well in school, and I did well in school. Um, Spidey really liked science. You know, my dad worked as a scientist, so there was a lot for me um, to get into. And, you know, being overweight as a kid, I got picked on, and I think that probably had something to do with 
another aspect of me relating to Peter because he was getting bullied at school. So, I mean, as a kid, like, Spider-Man was my jam. Batman was my jam. That's a whole other story about my love for Batman. And then probably Green Lantern and The Flash were, like, my next favorites because I had the superpowers toys. Back then it was Hal Jordan and Barry Allen. And then Captain America would also be up there from when I was a kid. And I had the Marvel superhero Secret Wars figure that got stolen from our next-door neighbor. And uh, I never got it back. But still have my Secret Wars classic suit Spidey and classic um, Iron Man and Doctor Doom and black suit Spidey. Actually, Iron Man too. I liked Iron Man a lot as a kid before he was a big movie star. Um, didn't have a lot of Iron Man comics, but man, when the Armor Wars came out, I was all about that as a kid. But anyways, we're not here to talk about Iron Man. We're here to talk about Spider-Man. So today, we're going to look um, at a couple of things. I, going forward, I think we're going to look at two issues a month um, and kind of stick with something close along the lines of the format that John and Josh and Don had done. Uh, we may add some revisions as we go, um, little modifications of things that we want to see as we figure out what our show is. Um, but for this special episode, this pilot, I thought we would compare and contrast Amazing Fantasy 15 with Spider-Man Chapter 1, Number 1, and then follow it up with Ultimate Spider-Man 1 through 5, since those are all telling, retelling the story in Amazing Spider-Man, Amazing Fantasy 15. See how those hold up, um, especially to today's standards. Was it worth going back to and redoing those stories? Um, and the thing about those three different versions is, while Amazing Fantasy came out in the early 60s, um, Spider-Man Chapter 1 was like, the end of the 90s. And then not too long after that, we had Ultimate Spider-Man, which was the early 2000s. So they're very close together. Um, and so it's really interesting to look at those two because they are drastically different, as we're going to find out. So to kick us off today, we are going to start off with Amazing Fantasy number 15, Dated, cover dated August of 1962. And the story we're looking at is called Spider-Man. Credits, Stanley uh, Ryder, Steve Ditko, plot assist, art. Art Simic did the letters and the logo design, and Jack King Kirby did the pencils. So, Jack, if you will read us the synopsis, we're going to be using the Amazing Spider-Man official index to the Marvel Universe uh, as a guidebook for any kind of notes and uh, little tidbits. So, Jack, if you would lead us off with a synopsis. <clears throat> Peter Parker is, a mid is Midtown High's only professional wallflower, but his Uncle Ben and Aunt May think he is pretty special. Midtown science teacher Mr. Warren is also impressed with him, but Pete just can't get respect from his teenage peers. So... Sally Averill brushes him aside for dreamboat Flash Thompson, and no one will join him at the science hall's experiments in radioactivity, where a spider descends just as the radio radioactivity is unleashed. 
Dying, the spider bites the nearest living thing, Peter Parker, giving him enhanced speed, strength, agility, and the ability to cling to nearly any surface. Testing his powers, a disguised Peter accepts the public challenge to stay in the ring three minutes with wrestler Crusher Hogan and easily wins, attracting the attention of Maxi Schiffman. At home, Peter creates a costume and web shooters, then appears on television as Spider-Man. At the studio, Spider-Man refuses to stop the fleeing burglar, telling Baxter Bigelow, the pursuing guard, For now on, I just look out for number one. That's me. Days later, Peter returns home to learn that Uncle Ben has been murdered by an intruder who is holed up in the Acme warehouse. Racing there as Spider-Man, Peter defeats the burglar and discovers he is the man he could have stopped at the studio. Grief-stricken and guilt-ridden, he learns that with great power must also come with great responsibility. All right. So that is our debut story. As you were reading the synopsis, I had no idea that that guard that was after the burglar was named Baxter Bigelow. <laughs> like, I, I don't know where that came from or where that was revealed. Oh, it says it in the notes. DBCW number one. I have no... I, maybe Daily Bugle Civil War number one? I'm going to have to follow up on that. I guess I should have research this page a little bit more good to know see you learn something even now so going through amazing fantasy 15 you've got that jack kirby cover which i didn't know that growing up that it was jack kirby i think i just assumed it was steve ditko uh, who i believe did the inking on it over jack kirby's pencils but now as an adult having read a lot of steve ditko and kirby I can see the way the body of Spider-Man is, is just more broad and bulkier, like a lot of uh, Kirby figures. But the main thing, when I look at this cover that makes me think of Kirby, is the criminal's face. Like, that's just a Kirby face with the big sunken eyes and the craggy face. Like, he looks like a Kirby character. Uh, so there's not really a title for this story, other than Spider-Man. Uh, and if you've used um, any of the frames on the PlayStation 4 game, you're probably familiar with the first page, because they use that a lot, where you can make your own photos. Um, but it starts off with Peter being picked on by his peers. I wouldn't say they're his friends, but you know, his classmates. And uh, Steve Ditko takes some artistic license and has a web behind Peter with a shadowy figure and a giant spider looming overhead, which makes it feel really ominous. I mean, from a modern perspective, we know he's the hero, but if you were reading this for the first time in 1962, I'm like, you got to be a little creeped out about that. Um, but Peter lives with his aunt and uncle who seem more like his grandparents, the way they're drawn. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Peter wears a lot of blue as we go forward from here and a lot of ties, which I don't know how many teenagers wore ties to school in the early 60s, but from what I've seen of like TV shows and all that, I, I can't say that was probably common. You know, For adults, for sure. I think suits and ties and hats were more of a thing back then, but 
I think that kind of makes Peter stand out a little bit from everyone else. Uh, what, what do you think of the first couple pages? Um, I really do like the shadow behind him with the spider and the webs. Just kind of, well, actually foreshadowing since it is just a big shadow to what's to come. They're foreshadowing with the shadow. Exactly. And, you know, we get to meet his aunt and uh, Uncle Ben and Aunt May, who kind of appear in the story. Not as much as I would like, because you don't really get that attachment later on once Uncle Ben gets murdered. Yeah, there's nothing other than, like, a basic, well, this is my father figure, and he's dead, so I should feel bad. I should feel bad for this character who just lost what's essentially his dad. But as a, as a reader, you're right. There's no connection to Ben. He's he's kind of generic old man, you know. You can clearly see that that he loves his nephew, but there's no there's no depth there. You compare like to the movie. It helps that it's an actual person acting it out. The well, the, both Amazing Spider-Man and Spider-Man. Where you can see that, you know, he's hardworking and worried about money. You don't get any of those layers here. He's uh, he's just a vuncular Uncle Ben. Uh, what do you think about Peter's social life, or lack thereof? Um, well, I'm just going by my own school, mm -hmm. so that's one of, like, thousands. Um, I don't really see a lot of bullying, really. Yeah. Or, like, well, I guess there is, like, everyone has their own little groups, but, like, no one's, like, going out and harassing anyone. I mean, we've had, like, the occasional fights in, like, the cafeteria and whatnot. Yeah. But, like, no one, I don't see, like, anyone, like excluding or like oh look at that guy what not I think we definitely live in a, an age where we're, it's more frowned upon and not not to say that it was accepted back in the 60s or in the 80s when I was primarily going to school but um, there's definitely more of an intolerance for that kind of behavior I think than in the past and I gotta give it to Peter I mean, he's the first time we see him, he's dejected and alone, standing apart from everybody, which, I mean, that's him as Spider-Man, too. He doesn't join a super team, really, or at least not for one that sticks for a while until 21st century. Um, but I got to give it to Peter, because even though he seems to be kind of an outcast, like he's still... You know, trying to get a date with Sally. He's trying to invite people to go with him to the science hall. So, I mean, he he's making the effort to be social. It just, it's just not working out for him. His interests are not, you know, what everyone else is going for. So, when we go to the, the fateful experiment, the open radiation, yeah. I mean... Science, <laughs> to borrow a phrase from our predecessors. I mean, we all know today, like, you get radiation, you're going to get cancer and die. And 
and there's no way you would be in front of these I don't even know what they are this machine without some kind of protection like if you go to get an x-ray at the doctor's office or the dentist they put that heavy lead shield on you so you won't parts of your body won't get exposed to it so we know it's bad but everyone's just Standing hanging out in front of it yeah and how the spider gets from in between the two red balls to Peter, who's kind of standing in the back, I don't know. But it doesn't matter. Um, he then starts to feel odd right away and almost gets hit in the street because he's not daydreaming, but just puzzled by what happened. And that's when his spider sense goes off. Um and leaps to safety. Now this gets um, repeated again in uh, some of the com- comics, some of the cartoons that come out later on, um, particularly in the '80s. They kind of do a faithful adaptation of this. And uh, so he goes to go think about things, and a few minutes later, he comes across a sign that says, "A hundred dollars to the man who can stay in the ring three minutes with Crusher Hogan." So. He basically changes out his button-down shirt for a turtleneck and puts some kind of netted mask over his head and goes back and and challenges Crusher Hogan, who's just generic bald dude in purple underwear. Jumps over him, carries him up, and uh, freaks everybody out. What What do you think of that? debut there um eh. like how does he just is this like out in the open or something like how does he just stumble across it like (laughs) yeah does he just go into some random building yeah it doesn't really yeah, because I assume maybe it was a sign, but now there's people gathering. I mean, there's a sign about the offer, but there's like a crowd standing in front of the ring, so it looks like that's something that's going on then. So I, it's just like an open window gym that's showing this off? I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, but that's where we meet his agent, who offers him some money. Um, says, you'll be a smash on Ed Sullivan's show. Ed Sullivan was like... He did a variety show. He would have a show on at night, and he would have lots of different guests, and they would perform. Um, So, Peter develops his costume right then and there, and then comes up with the web fluid, too, because a spider needs a web. Yeah. Yeah. So, he explains how his web shooters work. I'd really love to know why... Well, I mean, there's the obvious point of it shows how smart Peter is as a scientist that he develops this fluid that uh, makes his own webs. But why Stanley didn't, you know, have him shoot webs too? And then, of course, Peter David goes on to riff on this scene in Spider-Man 2099 where Miguel has um, web shooters in his forearms and he's grateful that they're, he's not anatomically correct like a spider and shooting webs out of his butt. So, and you know, that of course leads into the Spider-Man movie where he's got his ingrown web shooters. 
Uh, but he dons his costume, tries out his webs, and all of a sudden he is a TV sensation. Uh, currently, we are looking at the True Believers Amazing Fantasy reprint. In this version, when we go into part two, Spidey is crawling on the wall and we see his back, which has a blue spider on it. Um, I've read like so many different reprints of this story. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man 275 had it in the middle of the issue. Uh, that Marvel Masterworks trade paperback I mentioned. Uh, the Ultimate Spider-Man hardcover has it. I mean, the Marvel Tales had it. Uh, you throw a rock and you can find an issue. You can find a copy to read Amazing Fantasy 15. Um, this one's probably a little more accurate to how it was in 62, where he's got the blue spider, uh, but other versions that I have that I was looking at today, he's got the red spider on his back, like they recolored it. And then, of course, we see the, the burglar, or the thief. Uh, later on, we're going to find out what his real name is, but that's not for another 200 issues or so. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, so hold on tight. And it's not too long before he comes home one night and finds out that his uncle's been killed. And he goes off after him. And again, we see the blue spider. Um, he socks the criminal in the jaw. And then we get this panel of Spidey seeing the identity of the burglar for the first time. And in this version that we're looking at, Jack, what stands out to you the most? Um, there's two little dots and uh, eyes. Yeah. There was... Um, I forget the name of what the book was called, but there was a book at the public library growing up that had Amazing Fantasy 15 in it and a couple other Spider-Man stories. And the first time I saw those eyes, I didn't understand what was going on. It's so weird. It looks so bizarre because we're not used to seeing it at all. If we see Spider-Man emote, nowadays they do it you know, through the art, the artist will emphasize his eyes, which in 1962 shouldn't be changing size, you know, to show his emotion. Now we explain it with, you know, nanotech, Stark technology, moving his lenses. Um, so you always kind of give the artist the benefit of the doubt for that artistic expression to get their point across. Artistic license. Um, but the little pinpoint eyes... Depending on which version you pick up, they're there or they're not there. I, I've probably got, you know, as many versions without them as I do with them. And I remember one of my reprints that we had growing up, it didn't have the eyes. So I took a pen and put them in there. I don't know why. <laughs> I didn't take good care of my comics when I was like between like five and ten years old. A lot of times, you know, I'd read them a bunch and then... When it came time, we would trade them in at the bookstore, and then I'd get new ones. I hung on to my amazing spy or my Marvel Tales um, out of all those ones, but I mean, I read those things to pieces. Very, very few have made it to today in my collection, and uh, I'll show you some of those later. Just they're just falling apart. So, yeah, I I drew on my comics. Sorry. Shame. Um, but Spidey lowers the burglar down and uh, realizes it's his fault, and his mask is attached to his costume. He's not wearing the hood, the cowl anymore, but it's part of his suit. It's not a separate piece. 
And he just walks home in his suit without his mask on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's nighttime, but still. Yeah. Yeah, but New York's a city that never sleeps. So somebody's up. What did, what did you think of this tale? It's really short. Yeah. Um, it was sh- shocking going back to it and seeing how short it is. Yeah. Because, like, later comics and just Spider-Man comics and just comics in general back then, they're, like, way longer than what we're getting nowadays. And just seeing that just be as short as it is, it's kind of surprising. And because of that, it's super fast-paced. Like, kind of doesn't have a whole lot of time to, like, have a big payoff, I guess, for, like, things or, shoot, or explanations as to, like, how Peter jumps from this kind of distant kid to, like, all of a sudden to, like, yeah, I'm number one now and just not caring about anything, really. Yeah, the power goes to his head really quick. Yeah. Because it has to, because the story demands it. Um, Amazing Fantasy was an anthology title, so at the time they had uh, five stories all in one issue. But Spider-Man was special. He got to take up two of those story spots. Wow. So, um, even still, I mean, that's half the comic um, for his origin. So the next book that we're going to look at, unless you had any final thoughts. Um, just harkering back to the quick-facedness and what I said about Uncle Ben and stuff. Like, yeah, that is way too, like, short to like, yeah. really care about and stuff. Which gets addressed later on in what we're going to talk about. Do you have a, do you have a favorite panel from the issue? Um, the first one. The first page? Yeah. See, I would... That's a good one, and it's a classic. For me, my favorite is the first panel of part two, when he's performing on whoever show it is, and he's crawling down the wall. I've seen that image so many times, and it's just a cool, spidey image. And it, it's bigger than some of the other ones. There's a lot of little small panels in Ditko's work. And the fact that this one took up like half the page just makes it that much cooler to me. Any any other thoughts on Amazing Fantasy 15? Um, it's all right. It's all right. Yeah. The classic that launched a character that's been with us for almost 60 years is all right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's fair. It's um, definitely of its era, the way that people talk. And we'll obviously be getting into that more as the show progresses. And yeah, like you said, I, I totally agree, get where you're coming from. I mean, it's, it's short. It's like we all love it because it is a classic and it's the first Spider-Man story. Um, but because of the, the pacing and how quick it has to be in telling its story, like there's a lot of leaps there. So, because of that, uh, there's a writer and artist named John Byrne who rebooted Superman after Crisis on Infinite Earths, taking things back to basics and tweaking it. He thought he could do the same thing for Spider-Man. 
in the mid-90s. So, while things were kind of wrapping up over in the main titles, like we had just endured like the Clone Saga, just so many things, um, they were kind of deciding to close that era of Spider-Man. Uh, they did this story called The Final Chapter that saw uh, the Green Goblin kind of bring an end to the title. And with the final chapter, then they relaunched Amazing Spider-Man for the first time. <laughs> it wouldn't be the last. So you two kids, in January of 1999, could get an Amazing Spider-Man number one. Written and drawn by... Well, co-plotted by John Byrne and drawn by John Byrne with a script by Howard Mackey. But what would have been Amazing Spider-Man 442 now became Amazing Spider-Man number one. And... Amazing Spider-Man would not be the same again because now we go back and forth on relaunches and volumes and just becoming a general pain in the neck when it comes to legacy numbering and volume numbering. Uh, so in the meantime, while he did all that uh, and was working on a new Amazing Spider-Man, he at the same time was trying to update those original issues kind of doing like a, a year one style, like Batman year one had done. Um, but instead of being like a total blatant ripoff, they called it chapter one instead. So you had Spider-Man the final chapter and then Spider-Man chapter one, where he tried to update everything. Here we go, Spider-Man chapter one. The first issue is called Bitter Lesson. John Byrne writer, penciler, inker, and letterer. John Callis, I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, was the colorist, and Ralph Macchio was the editor. And no, not the Ralph Macchio that played the Karate Kid. I wrote to that Karate Kid actor in the 80s, thinking he also did comics, and I got an 8x10 glossy picture back with his signature, and that was it. I don't know when I realized it wasn't the same person, but I did at some point. Anyways... Spider-Man swings through the city, flashing back through his life. We get glimpses of his childhood, his search for acceptance amongst his classmates and their rejection of him, and the fatal lab accident that transforms him and Dr. Octavius into something else. As the death toll rises from the lab explosion, Peter continues to recuperate and gets stronger in the hospital, despite all odds. Octavius has disappeared, whisked away by his team. Uncle Ben buys Peter a top-of-the-line computer as a present, and a stranger notices, assisting him to the car with it. At dinner, Peter notices Crusher Hogan is offering $1,000 for anyone who can stay one round in the ring with him. Peter dons a mask and accepts the challenge, easily besting the wrestler. An agent named Max takes notice and offers his card, saying that if Peter comes up with a slicker outfit, they can make a fortune. Peter does so and comes up with his own type of synthetic webbing as well. Billing himself as the Amazing Spider-Man, Peter makes the rounds and becomes an instant celebrity. One night, as he's headed to a show, a familiar figure notices him leave, setting off Peter's spider sense for the first time, but he doesn't know what it is. The onlooker is the stranger who assisted Ben earlier with carrying the computer, and he has been casing the Parker household for a feature theft when he sees Spidey leave. 
Spidey goes to deliver another mesmerizing performance, and as he leaves the studio, beset by hungry reporters, the stranger approaches him, mistaking him for a fellow burglar, for reasons, and asks for his help avoiding a comp that is in pursuit down the hallway. Perplexed, Spider-Man lets the stranger go. The officer is unable to catch the would-be burglar and reads Spidey the Riot Act for not helping him, and the wall caller brushes it off, saying he's looking out for number one only. When Peter arrives home, he's greeted by several squad cars and Mrs. Watson, his neighbor. She tells him his uncle has been shot, murdered, and an officer tries to console Peter, saying the suspect is trapped at the old Acme warehouse down on the docks. Peter rushes off into the night and changes into Spider-Man. The story moves forward in time now, with Spider-Man confronting his uncle's killer, realizing it is the same man he let go by him. The burglar had assumed Spidey was a burglar too, and thought he would go back there to meet him and offer that they become partners. This enrages Spider-Man, who beats the burglar into unconsciousness, webs him up, and lowers him to the cops waiting below. Peter leaves the scene, his lesson learned, aware at last that with great power there must also come great responsibility. So right off the bat, we have an obvious cover homage and John Byrne even gives recognition to Jack and Steve on it, where he's basically copying the cover of Amazing Fantasy 15. And this is obviously a labor of love for John Byrne, because he writes, he pencils, he inks, and he letters. He's like the Robert Rodriguez of this comic book. He does it all. Um, what, what are your th- initial thoughts of Spider-Man Chapter 1. I like it a whole lot more than the original Amazing Fantasy. Why is that? Um, it has, it fixes a good amount of problems I had with the original. Mm-hmm. And uh, I like the art style a bit more because the wacky really? colors on the for like a lot of 60 stuff uh-huh. still is weird to me okay that's a fair point yeah it's not exactly uh verisimil- there's not a lot of reality in comic book coloring back in the day but you gotta remember too they were limited by their palette yeah they didn't have the advanced computer coloring techniques that we do today um, and the, not only just for like the coloring, but then the printing capabilities as well. You can see as comics go on that we get different paper stocks and everything just kind of generally improves. Um, also, I think there is probably more of an effort um, because they were aimed more at kids to make, make them bright and colorful and make them pop, which is why you have yellow buildings. <laughs> so, continuing on with that, what else elevated this version above the other one for you? Um, I really like what they did with the burglar, uh-huh. and how like Uncle Ben, like how he meets up with Uncle Ben at first, so that they have that connection, and how when he runs into Peter, Peter just doesn't stop him because. He's like, oh, I'm number one now. He just stands there because he's confused. Yeah. Before, like... Well, it makes him less of a jerk. Yeah. (laughs) 
and which you know helps with the the power getting to his head like super fast and I and of course at the end where the robber's like oh hey it's you again and then Peter gets super mad and beats him up really badly uh, let's see here. Well, I think it's funny because you also like Superman a lot, um, and John Byrne is the one who did who did Man of Steel, the comic, not the movie, the miniseries, not the ongoing series, where um, he wrote and drew like the first year or two of that book to like set the tone and and reinvigorate things. So he was trying to recapture that lightning in a bottle again for Spider-Man. And I don't think it really worked for anyone at the time. Um, no one really looks back at like Spider-Man chapter one as like canon going forward. It, at least among the circles that I traveled in online. Um, I think it was like 12 issues. And he kind of goes through like that first, roughly that first year of amazing Spider-Man. Um, and kind of remixing those stories, updating some costumes. I think Electro isn't yellow and green. He's like blue and white now <laughs> or something. So, which kind of brings me to um, the just the various updates we get in this issue. Like in Amazing Fantasy, it's a microscope. Now it's a computer. <laughs> and uh, bands like they mentioned the Rolling Stones, who were still big even though they were popular decades before chapter one was printed they're still a ginormous band and cindy crawford was a very popular supermodel at the time um so they update some of those things which is something that marvel tales did at the time as well in the early 80s they replaced like a reference to the beverly hillbillies with the dukes of hazard which was a popular show at the time and then they had a debate in the letter column, like, what do you guys like? Do you like us updating these references, or should we leave them as the originals? Um, Peter's sense of style to me, like his personal clothing style, oh, still yeah. felt like out of date. Yeah. Like, his peers are all dressed like more modern, but he's still kind of dressed like he's in the 60s. Yeah, he has like that turtleneck-y kind of thing that, going on. That vest. Yeah. He had a vest. Something I caught to, um, because I don't own this issue anymore, I read it digitally from Comixology. Um, in one of the flashbacks to when he was younger, like maybe four or five, he gets a present from his cousin Laura. Like, I have no idea who cousin Laura is. It's the only reference that I can recall of her, and I'm not sure that there's a payoff for that later on in chapter one or that. To my knowledge, she's not a character that Byrne brings back in Volume 2 of Amazing Spider-Man either. It says, hey, he's got a cousin, Laura. Kind of like how they later sneak in. Oh, do you know he has a sister named Teresa? But that's way down the road. In terms of writing, I felt like the thoughts are still in the old expository style. Like, there's a lot of, I'm telling you what's going on in my own head as opposed to more modern comics where they're almost like dictating to a journal and telling you their thoughts, but they do it in a more natural-sounding tone. And Spidey's origin is a lot... It's far more tragic in this because the accident 
in this continuity has an actual death toll. Like, before he gets bit and goes on his way, and then, you know, 20 years later, everyone else at that experiment dies of cancer from the radiation. Not really, but... Actually, no, there was a story... There is a story in this uh, satellite book. I want to say it was called, like, The Others. I used to have it. Um, what was it called? It wasn't called Web Spinners, the main title. I forget what it was. But it was, like, a guy, maybe, I think, that was at the demonstration, but he didn't get powers. He just became, like, a mutant spider thing. I don't remember. I'm not remembering right. I haven't read it in 20 years. But it was kind of like, uh, what if this went bad? kind of things. And now Spider-Man's got to deal with it. Um, but yeah, like people die in that explosion in chapter one and Doc Ock gets injured and, and taken away. And like Peter in like the movie and amazing fantasy, like he gets bit and then he's got powers. Chapter one, he is out. Like he's in that hospital for a while getting better. And slowly feeling stronger. Uh, what did you think about that? Did that make it feel more true to your enlightened sensibilities? It, it's weird because the reason for that explosion is the spider going into a vent. Oh, right, yeah. It's, it's a tiny spider that sets off this huge explosion that kills pretty much everyone there except Peter, of course. Who doesn't get, like, any wounds or, like, scars, it seems. Spider healing. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Spiders do that. Well, it throws off the delicate balance of his experiment. Which I don't know. I wonder if Sam Raimi kind of read Chapter 1 when he made Spider-Man 2 and took any influence of that. I know that... Um, one of the things, and our digital copy doesn't have this, but in the original print version, there's, I want to say there was a text page from John Byrne explaining why he was doing chapter one and some of his rationale behind it. And one of the things was there's just too many lab explosions or experimental explosions in the Marvel universe. So if he could cut it down by one, by combining Ox and Spidey's origins, then, you know, the Marvel Universe was better for it. Because, I mean, Hulk gets caught in an explosion and becomes the Hulk. The Green Goblin gets caught in an explosion and becomes the Goblin. Right? So, the Sandman caught in an explosion. <laughs> so, he was trying to cut it down. So, I, I get why he was doing that. And it, it, it that works for me, too. I, I'm not going to say it doesn't. But then I think he goes a little bit too far... Um, to me by trying to make trying to tie everything with the burglar in because I guess if you know New York which growing up on the west coast I have no idea of the geography of New York now you can go on Google and see how far away things are but back then not so much so I guess it bugged him like he would be midtown and then out in Queens which is far out in the boroughs why would the burglar be in these two places so he was trying to make a reason um, for why he would be targeting the Parker household, which it sounds like it works for you a lot more. And and I get the logic behind it, but I I don't understand. I like I get 
he he sees Ben buying this expensive computer, so he thinks, oh, they've got to have money. So he's casing the house out. He's watching their movements, finding their habits and routines, so he knows when a good time is to go back. But why seeing Spider-Man leave, he thinks, oh, okay, he must be a thief too, and he's casing the joint out but not taking anything from the inside. So after he meets Spidey later, and Spidey doesn't stop the cop, he goes back to the Parkers to go talk to Spider-Man. Like, I, that's where it loses me. Like, why would he go inside the Parker house and tell Uncle Ben that he was looking for Spider-Man? Like, why would you do that? It's like, hey, uh, old man, I'm going to rob you with this other guy that's on TV. Have you seen him? <laughs> Uh, no, because, okay, we'll come back later and we'll rob you together. Like, I, I don't get it. Like, that's where it falls apart for me. But up until then, Burn had me. But, and it's not like he decided now was the time to strike or anything like that. Like, that's specifically in the story where it mentions, like, he asked um, Ben, like, Aunt Anna says he waved a gun around and said he was looking for Spider-Man. <laughs> so it's like, hey, I think this guy's going to rob you too. Have you, have you seen him? So it, it it doesn't make sense for me. Um, quickly noting that the Crusher fight offers for $1,000 for one round. The prior version was $100 for three minutes. Um, the writing also notes that uh, the suit is black, not blue material, and the back spire, as we've talked before, is blue in Chapter 1, um, not red, the more traditional red that we see. So he's paying homage to the original Ditko coloring, um, which then gets changed depending on which reprint you're reading. And also he keeps the uh, there must also come great responsibility line. So that's something that gets pointed out later in, I don't even know which volume of Miles Morales number one it is. The one when he comes to the Marvel Universe for the first time, Peter makes a joke about everyone always forgets there must also part of it. Because usually when you hear the movies, what is what is the phrase? Uh, with great power must come great responsibility. Yeah, I don't even think they say the must. With great power comes great responsibility. So, uh, any other thoughts on, on chapter one? Um, I really like how this opens. Yeah. With the rain and lightning and stuff yeah. as he's running to go catch the burglar and whatnot. Yeah, it is cool how he breaks up the pacing a bit. It's not a straightforward narrative. It's We're starting the story at the end of the issue, basically, and then through flashback being caught up to the present, yeah. which is the final scene. And yeah, I guess it's nice seeing all these other Marvel characters kind of talking about them. I mean, yeah. What characters remind um, me there was the Fantastic Four, um, Doctor Strange. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, yeah, yeah. I think a few others. Well, as, as you'll see as we get into Amazing Spider-Man, um, 
the Marvel Universe makes random cameos all the time for a panel because you know they don't have to pay for Chris Evans to show up for thirty seconds. So there's definitely a big sense of a community. Um, like this was a shared universe. Stanley was really good about that in the '60s, like cross-promoting other books. And I mean, issue five of Amazing Spider-Man, you're going to see the Fantastic Four. Well, I don't even have to go that far. Issue one has the Fantastic Four. Um, and then, of course, when we get to the first annual, there's a ton of guest stars. Tons of them. So, yeah, that was cool that, that Byrne did that, too. How did you feel about um, this Aunt May and Uncle Ben? How did they compare to the original one, since you pointed out there was no characterization in the first version? Um, they were a bit better, I guess, but it still needs a bit of work, because they're still not that present yeah. amongst the story. How did you feel the dialogue was? We didn't really talk about that too much for Amazing Fantasy, did it did it feel natural to you? Did it seem dated? I guess it felt natural. Nothing felt dated at the very least. Yeah. But do you know who Cindy Crawford is? I know her name. I, <laughs> but you I don't know why? Yeah, I don't know why. She sells Omegas. Hmm. <laughs> She's a spokesperson for Omega now. And then she has kids who also do our, you know, sales spokespeople for Omega Omega for my Bond friends but yeah she was a very very popular supermodel in the 90s had a Pepsi ad <laughs> had a very short movie career any other thoughts on chapter one did you have a favorite panel or maybe a favorite moment like I said I really liked the opening with him running for the rain yeah and uh Burger would be like, oh, all happy to see Spider-Man while he's all like depressed, I guess, or like shocked, shocked, rather. Yeah, I mean, Burn is like, I like his Superman, but like he definitely has a definite style, and it can be very detailed at times, um, and some good compositions, but he's not someone that I really love a whole bunch. Um, like he definitely tries to do his own unique takes on some of the scenes, but still remaining faithful to what Steve Ditko did. Um, like maybe creating the same moments, but from a different angle, like a lot of it's very similar. He just shows us like from a different side, like an alternate camera, but there's not like one thing that like really makes me just like, Oh, this is the money shot. Like, this is the one I would frame and put on my wall. Nothing, nothing, like, there's some good Spidey swinging around town stuff. Um, his thing definitely looks more like an early 60s thing. Um, Doctor Strange floating on the cloud watching TV is kind of cool. But yeah, not, not terribly excited about any of this, really. Burgo looks kind of goofy when he takes mm -hmm. off his mask and reveals his face to Spider-Man. He's just got this squinty look and big, goofy smile. Oh, you know what? I take it back. When Spidey is angry and he's like, and now Uncle Ben is dead, the panel where his 
his eyes are squinty and he's kind of shaded out. He's like, because of me. Like, okay, that looks kind of cool. I like that panel. But, but otherwise, I mean, it's a decent enough job. I remember liking it a lot more when it came out back in the day. But I think with the subsequent issues, I just, not really a story I care for. I don't, when we went forward, I never really considered it to be part of the canon still in my own headspace. And, uh, like, I sold it I don't even know when, and I don't regret it. Like, I read this for the podcast, but I, I, I have no desire to get back to it ever again anytime soon. But, you know, it's part of it, too, is like what you grew up with, I think. So, and that's one of the reasons why we're doing this show is... You know, it's what I grew up with, but not what you grew up with. And, you know, how does it compare when you've read lots of other comics now with totally different styles than the period and the style I was used to reading when I was your age? Any other Chapter 1 thoughts before we move forward? No. All right. So we are going to power through these. There's going to be a lot of talking right now. Yeah. Um, so we are looking at Ultimate Spider-Man 1 through 5. Um, again, I had to sell these, unfortunately, back in the day. But I'm like, well, I've got this hardcover. The Ultimate Spider-Man hardcover has issues 1 through 13 with um, lots of cool text stuff in the back and bonus features. I know other trade paperbacks have done issues 1 through 7 because that kind of completes the arc. But since that goes into the Green Goblin, um, for this, the purposes of this episode, we're stopping on issue five because that ends basically where chapter one, number one ends and where Amazing Fantasy 15 ends. So we're going to power through the synopsis and then talk about our thoughts. So uh, Bill Jemis and Brian Michael Bendis did the story. Brian Michael Bendis is the writer. Mark Bagley, penciler. Art Thibbert with Dan Panosian on issue four, Inkers. Steve Busolato, issues one and two. Marie Javins in color graphics, number three. And Transparency Digital for issues four and five were the colorists. Richard Starkings in comic crafts, Troy Pateri. Wes Abbott and Albert Deschens did the letters. And Ralph Macchio, once again, editing. So issue one, Powerless. Norman Osborn is showing off a Rackton number 00, part of Oz Experiment 56. He gets distracted by a phone call and hands the spider off to a flunky, who puts it back in its container, but forgets to close the lid. The spider emerges. Peter Parker is studying at the mall food court, where he's getting picked on by classmates Flash and Kong. Uncle Ben stops by the table and calls Mary Jane over to talk with them and shoots Flash and Kong a dirty look that says for them to back off. More teasing ensues at school the next day, and Harry Osborn tells Peter to brush it off. Peter and his class go to Osborn Industries for a field trip. Peter gets bit by the spider and passes out. Kong spots the offending arachnid and squishes it. Norman tells his employees to pay any medical bills the Parkers get and to keep an eye on Peter. At school the next day, Kong goes to kick Peter from behind, and Peter's spider sense goes off for the first time, allowing him to dodge it and flip Kong. Everyone is stunned, and Peter passes out. Again. Peter wakes up in the hospital. 
Shaw, an Osborne employee, steals one of Peter's blood samples and delivers it to Norman. Based on the evidence, it looks to Norman like Peter is dying and orders him to be killed so his death won't be linked back to the spider bite. Shaw goes to run Peter over in the street, but Spider-Sense saves the teen and he dodges. Shaw reports to Osborne, who quickly orders Shaw to cancel the kill order so he can again go back to studying Peter and his newfound abilities. Peter does some home research on his own, skipping school. He gets in a fight with May and Ben over his ditching class. Later that night, he lies awake in bed pondering something. He gets up, places a hand on the wall, then another, then a foot, then the other, and before he knows it, he is crawling and hanging upside down on the ceiling. Issue 2. Growing Pains Peter's strength starts to develop, along with his confidence, which winds up getting him into a fight with Flash Thompson after school, resulting in Flash breaking his hand when Peter stops his punch. Norman talks to Harry and tells him to invite Peter to Osborne Industries for a private tour to make up for the accident. Harry beams with excitement. The Thompsons call Uncle Ben and tell him they expect them to pay for Flash's medical bills from the fight. Peter sneaks out that night to test his powers some more. At Osborne Industries the next day, the tour is going well until Dr. Octavius takes a sample of Peter's blood without permission. Upon examination, Osborne decides he wants to recreate the accident, using himself as the test subject. Issue 3, entitled Wannabe, Peter and his classmates see a UCW exhibition and there is a contest. You can take Crusher Hogan down, you win $500. Peter goes home and devises a makeshift costume to get past the age requirement. He returns to the ring and easily beats the wrestler. He takes the prize money and leaves it anonymously at the door of Ben and May, with a cover letter stating it's from his teachers who felt what happened with Flash was unfair. Peter later gets talking into joining the basketball team. I'm sorry. Peter later gets talked into joining the basketball team to replace the injured Flash. Peter continues doing exhibitions after school, taking down Crusher. The promoter gives Peter a flashier suit to appear in. It's a little blank, though. It could use something. Maybe a spider and some webs? Harry visits his dad in the lab as Norman begins his experiment and starts to scream. Issue 4. With Great Power. Well, Norman's experiment at Osborne Industries ended in disaster. Several are dead, and the lab is in ruins. Dr. Octavius seems to have suffered a head injury. Peter, in the meantime, is showing off his new costume in the ring. After his latest match, he gets accused by the manager of stealing the box office receipts. Frustrated that no one believes his innocence, he takes off and changes into a civilian identity and walks home. He crosses paths with a man robbing a deli and does nothing to stop him, outside of standing in front of him, which simply causes the thief to just run in a different direction. When he gets home, May and Ben are waiting for him, wanting to know why his A in English is now a D. Peter is shocked and an argument ensues when his aunt and uncle try and lay down the law. Peter angrily runs out and with nowhere to go crashes at Kong's. Kong's parents are gone for the week and he later throws a house party where drunk Liz Allen tries to hit on Peter. Mary Jane sees this and runs off upset. Peter tries to follow but is met at the door by Uncle Ben. Ben tries to talk with the team, giving him the power and responsibility speech, but it just causes Peter to run off again. He takes some time to think and decides to go home and tell May and Ben what's really going on. 
Only when he arrives back, he finds his home is now a crime scene, beset by officers. Issue 5. Life Lessons Harry awakens to the sound of his mother screaming. By the time he gets to her, she is dead, killed by a flaming monster who runs off into the night. Back at the Parker residence, May is giving her statement to the officers. Peter overhears chatter on the police radio about a robbery at Popeye's that may be connected and he runs out of the house, changing into a Spider-Man costume as he goes. He finds the burglar holed up in an abandoned warehouse with the police outside. Spider-Man confronts his uncle's murderer and knocks him unconscious. Only then does he see it's the same man he let escape from the deli robbery. He studies the burglar's ID before luring him to the police down below, including one Captain Stacy. Peter reflects on the lesson he just learned as he goes out on his first patrol, stopping crimes and saving lives. When he finally returns home, attired as Peter, he finds MJ waiting for him. She says Aunt May is staying with them, and Peter is welcome to come too. Peter collapses into Mary Jane's arms in grief as the issue ends. So, I want to start off first just to kind of look at the evolution here of the end. Amazing Fantasy 15 ends, and a lean, silent figure slowly fades into the gathering darkness, aware at last that in this world, with great power, there must also come great responsibility. Spider-Man Chapter 1 closes, A lean, silent figure fades into the shadows, aware at last of the true meaning behind the bitter lesson fate is taught, aware at last that with, a great, with great power there must also come great responsibility. Ultimate Spider-Man is narrated by Peter. For some reason I've been given great power, and with great power there must come great responsibility. So I thought it was kind of interesting, just the dynamic of how stories are told, where we have a narrator telling us an amazing fantasy in chapter one, but Ultimate Spider-Man makes it more personal. Peter's telling us what's going on. And while Byrne carries over the must-also-come part, Peter just breaks it down to there must come great responsibility. What did you think about that? Did you like, do you have one preferred over the other? I like hearing Peter's voice instead of like this omnipotent voice being like, with great power, there must also come great responsibility. And I like how Peter learned or, like, takes that from Uncle Ben and is like, mm -hmm. now that I have this power, this power that was given to me for whatever reason, I have to use it and be responsible. No, I think that's a really good observation. It, it makes it more personal for Peter. Like, you, the big difference, I think, is, you know, we we get told this is the lesson he learned by, like you said, the omnipotent voice. But in this, like, he really learns that lesson. And he's telling you that he learned that lesson. So it makes the whole thing more personal. Like, we see his grief, because at the end of Chapter 1, Animation Fantasy, he's crying. But, but here we hear... Here we hear. Here we get... He gets... He speaks that truth to the reader. Um, he still ends crying, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think you feel it a little bit more. 
And it, it's something, you know, like trying to track this history of where it comes from. Because it, it's not Uncle Ben who teaches it to him in Amazing Fantasy 15. Somewhere along the line, it, along the way, it got attributed to Ben, that phrase. And I, I would have to dig in and find out where that was. I mean, certainly we get it in 2002, um, where Ben tells it to Peter in the movie. And then in Amazing Spider-Man, the movie, Ben is imparting it to Peter that it's a lesson his dad held close and you should do it too. And uh, in Homecoming, Tony... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so yeah, I... I'm kind of with you on that. You've convinced me. Like, yeah, it, it does mean more coming from Peter. What other other thoughts do you have? On the topic of that, um, after he stops the burglar and whatnot, he's talking about, you know, the great responsibility. With great power comes great responsibility stuff. Mm-hmm. While he's going out and saving people. Yeah. And I really like that we get to see him, you know, accept what he has to do now and knows what he has to do. He's putting it into action right away. Yeah. He's learned the lesson and he's immediately trying to make amends. He's immediately paying that price. Well, he's already paid the price. He lost his uncle. But now he's trying to make up for it, like right off the bat. Well, that's really cool too. I I never considered that. Yeah, because the other versions, he just walks off into the night, the lean figure. So, yeah, I think it's also another more effective way that, that Ben just really stretches it out. I mean, and if you look at it, too, like we had, I don't know, 10, 12 pages to tell this story, and then that got blown into a whole comic, and now it's blown across five comics, the first one of which I think is like 40 pages. So, like, they really flesh it out. Like and that's something you mentioned before about like you don't know May and Ben very well. How did you feel about their treatment in Ultimate Spider-Man? Um, they get what he's going through. Yeah. Like, I mean, they argue with him when you know he's talking back, but which they should. Yeah, but after he like goes away to his like room or just up the stairs, they like, yeah. We get what he's been going through lately, mm-hmm. and while he's not right, he's he'll he'll get through it one day. They're old, but they're not out of touch. Yeah, yeah. And you know, we've got the little updates like May is going to go look stuff up on the computer. Ben has got like a hippie ponytail. I think the notes in the back refer that they both went to Woodstock, which was a big uh, concert in the 60s where a lot of people were running around and free love and all that. Yeah, I remember really, like when this first came out, like just really feeling the story. At a certain point, you get exposed to something, be it a story or a movie, over and over again. Like you become numb to it through the repetition. Um, and it loses some of its meaning, and you kind of got to give it a break for a little bit before you get back to it and rediscover it. Like, like Pulp Fiction was a movie I watched ad nauseum growing up, and 
like you just kind of got to put it off to the side and you know kind of you got to learn to want it again and and see it in a different light because you know as time goes on hopefully as a person you change and you get a different view of things and you look at things differently and when you revisit something you get a new perspective and um and it's something like just for me personally like seeing like superman the movie like there was a point where I was, that movie was so dull to me. It's like we're spending like over an hour of like we're on Krypton and or Krypton in that case, and you know seeing him on the farm and then he's got to walk to the fortress and he, like it's forever until we see Superman. And in a sense, you also get that with like Batman Begins before he becomes Batman. A good chunk of Spider-Man, the first movie that there's no Spider-Man, and for someone like me who grew up with all those stories over and over, like I just want to get to the action stuff. I want to get to the character doing the character things, and so when it comes to like redoing Amazing Fantasy 15, like I know the story. What are you going to bring to it that's going to make it fresh uh, for me that I'm going to enjoy it? And I think by stretching it out and developing these characters more, like, I really got to enjoy it. Um, Sorry, Stan and Steve, in some ways more than the original, because they had that time to, like, really get you invested. Like, Uncle Ben has been dead my whole life. (laughs) You know, even from before I started reading comics, he was dead. But the fact that you know, Bendis made me care about him and sad that he died. Like, and the way that Peter reacted to it, like, oh, no, like, whatever it came out, 2000, 2001, I was crying. 23, 24 years old reading that, and I was getting a little choked up. Like, the story's really effective. Um, and, you know, I, I would like to think I was a good kid growing up, like I got good grades, but, you know, in my later teenage years, I wouldn't say rebellion, but, you know, my I butted heads with my parents, like Peter does with me and Ben here, and I'm sure we will someday soon, too, probably, about stuff, but I don't know where I'm going with this now. It, it just it makes it very real. It feels more authentic that they would have a little bit of friction at this time because it's hard for parents to let go and it's hard for kids to feel like they're being seen as an adult because they feel more mature than maybe they are. Now, Peter as a character has always been more mature, I feel, than his peers. He's always had, for the most part, a good head on his shoulders. But even, have you ever heard the phrase with... with um, Absolute power corrupts absolutely. No. Yeah, basically, it's like you get so much power, you get too much power, and it corrupts you. It goes to your head. So, absolute power corrupts absolutely, but with great power comes great responsibility. So, you got to juggle those. But basically, that's what we see with Peter. Like, he's been picked on his whole life, even more so in Ultimate Spider-Man. Um... And it goes to his head a little bit because now he's not being picked on. Now he's got the strength to do something about it. And, and a lot of times for bullies who are doing the bullying, it's a power trip for them because they feel weak and insignificant. So Peter kind of stops, starts making that transition 
now that he's getting money and he's started the basketball team. But, you know, his baseline self kind of reverts itself and he realizes he's wrong and and goes to tell May and Ben too late what's been going on with them. And that it's not I don't hate the moments, but it always gets me the the tragedy of both Spider-Man the movie and Amazing Spider-Man the movie uh, and Ultimate Spider-Man the comic that Peter and Ben's last time talking to each other was a fight and you know Peter never gets to make that up to him like he never gets that you know I love you I appreciate you uh, thing and it just it's like I hate it because it makes it all the more tragic it's good and it's effective, but it, it's just it adds like just a layer of sadness for me. It's like oh, and so but then that fuels Peter. Like everything after that is trying to make up for that. What else you got about Ultimate Spidey? Off of the ending and whatnot, I really like how MJ comforts him. Like yes, he just walks home and she's waiting there for him, and then he they just huddle up on the ground and mm-hmm. just hug it out while he cries and he gets that comfort that he needs mm-hmm. after going through such a big loss and yeah he doesn't have that in the other ones yeah he just walks away and goes about his life it's a nice parallel to amazing spider-man 122 after gwen dies because mary jane in that universe fulfills much the same role of being there uh, for Peter when he needs a shoulder. Um, and um, speaking of which, that's a pretty big change right there, though. Comparing to the other versions, there's no Mary Jane that we know of in those other versions. There is, but we'll get to that a long, long time from now on why there is. But until then, like, we don't see her. Um, and in the, the ultimate version, she is present. She is, like, his one friend. She's not the party girl. Um, she's much more studious in nature. What, what did you think of this version of Mary Jane? Uh, I feel like she meshes well better with who Peter is as uh-huh. a person. More reserved, more kind of smart, smarter and mature. Mm-hmm. And, well, I guess, you know, how opposites retra- attract and whatnot. But I feel like this just fits better for why they would be friends in the first place. Yeah. No, I, I won't say anything. I won't spoil stuff that we'll get to hopefully someday. But eventually we will get to reasons why they are a good couple in Amazing mm-hmm. Spider-Man. But that's not for another 20 years. So... Don't hold your breath. Another similarity is Doc Ock. Well, he may not be an amazing fantasy, but going off of John Burns Chapter 1, where he was tying origins together... Now, granted, he didn't get hurt in the same spider bite accident that Peter did, um, but he and Norman now share an origin in the explosion that changes them, but that's something you get to later in in, um, Ultimate Spider-Man. But, you know, they, they kind of bring it more, make it more cohesive on why he has some of the villains that he has. 
And yet, going back more to the character dynamic of everything, it's it's totally different moving MJ and Harry uh, up in the timeline. And you can see, you know, if we were to go watch the movie right now, there's Harry and MJ with him in high school. Like, that didn't happen anywhere until this, to my recollection. I mean, it's just, it's Peter and Liz and Flash in high school. And then when he goes to college, that's when he meets Harry and Gwen. And then a few months later, that's when Mary Jane comes into the picture. So he goes at the beginning of being a loner to expanding his friend base later when he gets to college. Versus here, he's kind of got somewhat of a support system with Harry, though he's kind of using them for like grade help. Yeah. But he's still nice to him. Um, maybe not quite the buddy-buddy they are in the Sam Raimi films. Um, definitely not in the web films where they were apart for a while but were childhood friends. But I, I like Peter and Harry together. I like, I like their friendship and the unfortunate tragedy that comes out of that. But I always like seeing them start as friends. Um, so that definitely changes it a little bit. Um, Flash is still going to Flash. Of course. But now we have Kong, who later, you know, becomes a friend of Peter's. But right now, not so much. It gives Flash someone to be buddy-buddy with, I guess. I think Peter dresses more like his contemporaries this time out. Think Bagley. And we haven't even talked about Bagley. I mean, Peter, Peter dresses more like Everybody else, he doesn't stand out as much. He's just in jeans and T-shirts and long sleeve tees. Uh, I want to say there was something they were kind of going for a Harry Potter vibe at first because Harry Potter was just starting to become a big thing with the books. So they give him like those round spectacles like Harry Potter had on the covers. Um, obviously, Peter has long, longer hair. And that was something, too, that I think because of how I grew up reading comics, like I get in that rut of thinking that they kind of look like they should in the 60s or what Steve Ditko presented as the 60s. Like, and so it's weird to me to see like not a clean cut Peter Parker. His hair is long, it's a little disheveled. Um, but I mean, I had my hair like that in high school. So... In some ways, it, it makes me relate to him a little bit. In other ways, it's like, that's not how Steve Ditko did it. Um, but generally, I do like this version of Peter a lot. Flash's haircut, though. He's got like this E.R. George Clooney bowl cut Caesar, the Caesar going on. Bowl cuts are always terrible. Yeah. And MJ, I mean, she doesn't have the classic Ramita bangs. Like, MJ's look stayed... The same from her first appearance in Amazing Spidey 42 all the way until, like, Todd McFarlane started messing with it. Like, circa 299, 300. Started giving her, like, different hairstyles, and she started getting big hair, and they got away from the classic Ramita look with the bangs. So here she's kind of got, like, a Jennifer Aniston from Friends haircut. And that, you know, brings her more contemporary. But Bagley was the winner of, like, a Marvel tryout audition thing. 
and eventually started doing Amazing Spider-Man in the mid-90s. Like, he had a couple fill-ins. He had Todd McFarlane, and then he got uh, succeeded by Eric Larson. And then when Eric Larson... Todd McFarlane left to do Spider-Man, and Eric Larson did Amazing Spider-Man. Then when Todd McFarlane left to form Image, Eric Larson took over Spider-Man, and then Mark Bagley took over Amazing. So he was, like, right there during the whole life theft and clone saga and stayed on that for a while and then eventually transitioned into, like, the Thunderbolts and then Ultimate Spider-Man. So he and Bendis set the record, the Marvel record, for most consecutive writer-artist issues in a row. It was, like, 110 or 120 the previous record holders were Jack Kirby and Stan Lee on Fantastic Four, I think. So they beat their record. Um, so the man knows his Spider-Man well. And, I mean, he should. He's probably drawn at this point like over 200 issues of Spider-Man combined. If you look at like his amazing and then life story and the fact that he's back on amazing right now as we speak in 2021. So... But what's cool about this is he doesn't draw Peter or Spider-Man like he did in Amazing, where he's a little bit taller, shorter hair, more muscular and defined. Like, he's a scrawny, gawky kid. Um, he definitely, when he swings, he seems to flail about a little bit more. The way he draws the eyes on the mask is different. He usually has this uh, reflection in the lens, like this little line in a square or a rectangle. What did you think of the wrestler costume? Uh, the original with like the black mask. And... Oh yeah, he's got two wrestler costumes in this. Yeah, I can't find. The first one in this book, you can play in the PS4 Spider-Man game as an alternate skin. Okay. There it is. This one feels a little closer to the Amazing Fantasy 15 suit. I mean, the colors are different. But it's just kind of like sweatpants, sweatshirt, and a ski mask. But at least there's more of like the hint of the Spider-Man eyes to come. As opposed to just like the fishnet or whatever he wore <laughs> in the 60s. Wherever he got that from. And yeah, I like how he just gets it from the yeah. arena people. Yeah, he goes from homemade to someone whipped this up for him. I don't know if that's spandex or... It's just missing something. In fact, he kind of looks like the PlayStation 1 game because they didn't have the capabilities to put in all the webs and everything for that first game. So he's very simple when you go around and fight, if I'm remembering right. And then it wasn't until Spider-Man 2 Enter Electro that he kind of got more definition with the webs. So of the three, which, which version do you prefer? Like story wise or suit wise? Oh, uh, just story wise. Uh, well, you didn't answer the suit. Which which suit do you prefer? Um, I kind of have to go with Amazing, or not Amazing Fantasy Fifteen. You like that wrestling suit the best? Oh, we're talking about wrestling suits. I thought we were just talking about regular spider suits. Oh, I mean wrestling suit then Ultimate. But like spider suits, I, I I like the webs under the armpits. Yeah, the web pits can't go wrong with that. 
And of course he doesn't get the web lines on his suit until later in the ultimate story. Yep. So, it's weird. Kind of wrapping this up, because we've been John for a bit. What, uh, what did you think of the dialogue for this? The way everyone talked? I mean, it seems natural to me. Yeah. Like, very genuine. Um, of course, the big examples are the arguments between Peter and Aunt May and Uncle Ben. I feel they're just like trying to understand and he's just he just doesn't know what's going on with himself and they're just both confused I feel yeah something that I liked about Bendis when I first discovered him as a writer was uh, the way he wrote dialogue and um, I first came across him in Powers your uncle Eric handed me this comic and uh just people had like the natural speech patterns. There's lots of starts and stops or repetition as you're trying to uh, to get a statement out. So maybe you kind of repeat yourself a little bit. Like he throws more of that natural style of dialogue in there. Um, and of course he refines it as he goes on and and maybe overdoes it sometimes. But generally, I, it was a really fresh thing back in the day when this came out, and. I just loved reading this dialogue. I love saying it out loud, just the way it flowed. It was like you're reading a play, just bam, bam, bam. Um, and I don't feel like this story quite makes as many modern references as like Byrne tried to do. I mean, it's definitely set in the, the day that it takes place, but they weren't like, hey, uh, Will Smith is big this year. Let's make a mention to Wild Wild West <laughs> or something. So I think that helps make this feel a little more timeless, even though the fashion still kind of dates it to a degree. Yeah. Or you can see at the party Peter goes to. Oh, yeah. You know, everyone's dressed in. It definitely feels more... The, the original stuff, the kids feel more clean cut. And here you have, like, a high school kegger. And... Um, yeah, it definitely has an air of authenticity to it. So, do you have a, a... Of the three that we've read, what's your favorite version of it? Um, of the origin? Ultimate. Yeah, I mean, no disrespect to Stan and Steve, because what they did is iconic and obviously has stood the test of time. But, I mean, Bendis just has so much more room to work with. Um, and Bagley is a phenomenal artist as well. That, and, and it's it's easy for them because Stan and Steve did the heavy lifting. Yeah. They thought up the concept, they broke the story, and you know, it's really easy when you have that framework to just look at what worked, what maybe necessarily didn't work as well, or needed clarification. And they got the time and space to do that and make it work. Um, and then, of course, this ultimate version goes on to inspire, you know, movies, comics that came after. I'm sorry, cartoons that came after it, all sorts of a video game. So it was definitely a good 
entry point for a new reader. Because that was the whole point. At that point, the Marvel Universe was about 40 years old. And they wanted to get a younger demographic who may be a little intimidated by 500 issues of Amazing Spider-Man and 200 issues of Spectacular Spider-Man, a bazillion issues of X-Men. So they were starting over again. Some people think they should have had a crisis and then started everything over with the Ultimate Universe and not published Ultimate side-by-side with the 616 Marvel Universe. Um, But, I mean, I stuck with Ultimate until just after Bagley left. It was it was a good run. It's definitely a different Peter Parker. I still enjoyed it a lot. I still had a sense of of identifying with him. Good stuff. Yeah. So I think I think we've covered it pretty well, for the most part. I mean, we've yeah. been talking for hour and a half. I think almost forty minutes or hour forty minutes. Yeah. So I think we can put a pin in it for today good pilot episode uh, and like I said next time when we talk I think we'll we'll dive into Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2 and get into more of like panels we liked and maybe um, favorite line of dialogue favorite scene but I like looking back and, and seeing what still holds up do you feel that Amazing Fantasy 15 holds up in 2021? decently I mean yeah. of course the art or not the art like the style of what people wear and the coloring and whatnot that feels dated but you know it's the spider-man origin story yeah that that never gets old i feel what about chapter one like i mean i like it more but i don't know how like like you said it makes a lot of references to like 90s culture and whatnot and like yeah and I guess you can see kind of the style of what people wear I mean the same is true for Ultimate yeah but with Peter he's kind of just plain outfit and whatnot for me I mean Amazing Fantasy despite maybe their wardrobe and some phrases it still stands the test of time. Chapter one has not held up for me at all. Like I said, I really liked it in 99. And now I, if I don't read it again, I'm okay with that. But Ultimate Spider-Man, well, yeah, it's it's very early 2000s as well. I think it still holds up pretty well just because the character work is so strong in it. And I, I think what changes were made do make it a better story. Make They enhance you know, the the small page count that Stan and Steve had. So I think that's going to be it for us this time, Spider-Friends. Um, and we will be back hopefully very, very soon, diving into the world of Amazing Spider-Man and uh, how that how that looks to a teenager in the 21st century. Yeah. So until that next episode, this is Javi. And I'm Jack. Reminding you to keep your web cartridges full and stay classy. Thank you for listening to another episode of Amazing Spider-Man Classics, part of the Spidey Dude Radio Network. You can follow the show on Twitter, at ASM underscore classics. Jack and I would like to thank Joshua Bertoni, Donovan Morgan Grant, and John Wilson. 
for allowing us to continue their work on this podcast, which you can find on the Spidey Dude Network. We would also like to thank Stan Lee, Steve Ditko, John Romita, and all the amazing creators who have followed, making the Web Slinger one of the greatest heroes of all fiction. Thank you, and Excelsior.